Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the movie simply called W.E., Released in 2011 and directed by Madonna, the name W.E. stands for Wallace and Edward. That would be Wallace Simpson, the American divorcee, for whom King Edward VIII abdicated the throne. After the abdication, they became the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The movie also uses the storyline of a married woman in 1998 who attends the estate auction of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor to learn more about them and gain her own courage to leave her abusive marriage. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'll be joined by Andrew Loney, the author of Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Before we chat with Andrew, though, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. That means one is an all-out lie. (laughs) Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Wally Winthrop's storyline is fictional. Number two, King Edward VIII's real name was Bertie. Number three, Wallace Simpson was married twice before Edward. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Andrew Loney about the historical accuracy of W.E. Let's start off with a high-level view of the movie. If you were to give this uh, letter grade for historical accuracy, what would it get? Well, on a, on a rating of one to ten, which is ten is highly accurate, I'd give it a two. Uh, I mean, a two. Yeah, the costumes are great. They spent a lot of money. They recreated the costumes. They had jewelry. Uh, they did years of research, supposedly. Um, but uh, I'm afraid to story. And in fact, there are bits that they quote, which are quotes from the actual letters that Wallace and Edward wrote. So, to that extent, there's some accuracy, but most of it is complete twaddle. <laughs> that the the official technical term and it was panned by the critics and and I think it only took one hundred eighty three thousand dollars at the box office so it was a real critical disaster as well as commercial disaster but uh, as you say the best films are the ones that are perhaps the worst films uh, in terms of talking <laughs> about this for, for the program that's true that that's true that's true well at the very beginning of the movie it does open with some text it says we're watching uh, Wallace and Winfield Spencer in Shanghai in the year nineteen twenty four. And right away, we can tell that this is an abusive relationship. Uh, Winfield doesn't flinch to grab Wallace. She, he throws her to the ground. He kicks her while she's down. It's, it's, it's tough to watch. Uh, there are a few clues that we can pick up from the movie, such as uh, Winfield storms into the room wearing a military uniform. Uh, Wallace cries out, not the baby, as Winfield kicks her. Uh, how well does the movie do setting up this introduction to Wallace before she became Mrs. Wallace Simpson. Well, it's an interesting way to start because most people don't realize that she had this period uh, in Shanghai before she married um, uh, Ernest Simpson. And there was a, a first marriage at the age of 19 with this guy, Wynne Spencer, who was abusive. Uh, he was a, an American Air Force um, um, captain. Uh, and so that is accurate. Now, the question of uh, whether she lost a baby through his abusive actions, I think, is more debatable. There's some suggestions she couldn't have had children. There are other suggestions she couldn't have children later because she had an abortion. So I think there's a big mystery there. Um, but I, I think uh, it, it's a slightly odd beginning because we just don't understand what's, what, how that relates to the abdication. Honestly, I didn't know. I mean, uh, uh, without that little bit of text, I wouldn't have known that they were married. I mean, I, just a relationship, perhaps, but not. There wasn't anything in the movie to suggest that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and you know, they do mention later in the film that they're married, and they go through this sort of flashbacks. But that period in China was very important for her. Um, it's supposedly where she learned a lot of her sexual tricks that she deployed in later life. There's some mystery about who, you know, if she was she a spy when she was out there. She certainly had lots of affairs then. Uh, and uh, later, and indeed during her marriage to the Duke of Windsor, which I don't think people realize. Wow. So there was a possibility. 
some rumors that she was a spy. I mean, yeah, the movie doesn't even mention that at all. No, I mean, it's odd because what Madonna is, is saying is this woman, we see everything through the perspective of how it affected the, the, the king uh, uh, and Duke Windsor rather than through her perspective. And I think what they do do well in the film is this idea that she's like a caged bird, that she is trapped in a marriage she doesn't want. And that is accurate. Um, but yeah, there's a whole whole backstory there, um, which uh, you know you need to read the biographies to to really understand. Wow, yeah, I, yeah, I watched the movies and I didn't understand that at all. So that's good to know. Yeah, something else I was curious about because because throughout the movie it kind of bounces between Wallace Simpson's story and another woman who is in an unhappy marriage with an abusive husband named Wally Winthrop. Uh, at one point in the movie, uh, Wally mentions that she was named after Wallace. Uh, Wally's story, though, is set in 1998 in New York City. Although the movie never, I never noticed that it actually mentioned the year in the movie, but in the in the summary for the movie on the descriptor, um, when you're, when you're watching it, it mentions it there. Uh, but the movie itself is kind of vague about the timeline for for Wally. It just seems to be more modern times. The impression that I got from the movie overall was that Wally's storyline is completely made up. But I have to ask, is there any historical truth to Wally's story in the movie? No, it is completely made up. But I suppose there were lots of people, they used the the device of the big auction in 1998, uh, where they sold a lot of the artifacts, uh, you know, to bring, to, to, to introduce her. And I suppose there were lots of people who are, are remain obsessed by the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, uh, and uh, there's an appreciation society. People do trade in their artifacts, uh, letters, and, and and things like that. So, you know, it's it, there could have been someone like that. I mean, she's a sort of composite figure, I suspect. But I'm, I've never come across anyone who was as obsessive as that, as to go and trace letters, to go and see Alfayette, who who owned the Bois de Boulogne, the house that they'd had, and owned a lot of the things that they left, like the letters. Okay. Okay. But so the, the auction was a real thing that happened in 98. So that maybe that was the, the, the tie That's that they the were device. using, the filmmakers were using. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is true. That is accurate. Okay. Okay. Well, we won't be talking about Wally's story a lot since it was completely made up, but the, the first time that we see Wallace meeting Edward in the movie is that it's some sort of an event or party. Again, the movie is again, kind of, kind of vague about what this is that we're seeing. It doesn't give us really a time or place, although it's pretty obvious we're not in Shanghai in 1924 anymore. Uh, like at the beginning of the movie as movie watchers, what we can deduce is that it's, it's an exclusive event. There's some dialogue where Wallace mentions to Ernest that she spent six months ingratiating herself to her friend Thelma to get an invitation so that she could meet Edward. Although, the movie doesn't really explain why Wallace wanted to meet Edward so bad. This is the first time in the movie that we find out that Wallace and Ernest are married when Wallace calls, or I'm sorry, Edward calls Wallace uh, Mrs. Simpson. So that's the clue that that she's ma- actually married now. So can you fill in some more historical context around how and when Wallace and Edward met for the first time? Yes, Um Wallace married Ernest Simpson in 1928, but in 1931, at a hunting weekend in Leicestershire, so not Fort Belvedere or anywhere else, she was introduced to him at a, a, a sort of country house party. Um, I don't think she'd been manoeuvring for six months, but she certainly was introduced to her friend Thelma Furness. It's certainly true that Thelma, who'd been having an affair with the, with the Prince of Wales, wanted to, wanted to go off and have an affair with the, the, uh, Aga Khan. Uh, and so she sort of passed Wallace across to basically keep keep what she called the little man happy. And and Wallace was, I suppose, to seize this opportunity to begin to have an affair with him. But I think what Wallace wanted was the financial security and the social, I suppose, um, exposure she got by being linked to the royal household. I think she she this was a fling for her and an opportunity to mix in a society that she wasn't used to mixing in. Uh, you know, her husband had quite a modest income. He was not a great socialite. And this catapulted her into into society. Oh, wow. So it was more almost Thelma's uh, wanting her friend to meet Edward than not necessarily because the movie certainly implies that it's it's Wallace that is wanting, like I mentioned, you know, six months of, you know, to try to get this invitation. It really makes it seem like she's the one that wants to meet Edward, not necessarily Thelma. Yeah, I don't think it was quite as as as, as organized as that. I think Th- Thelma was off and she thought her friend would get on well with the Duke. I don't think she she introduced her on the basis they would have an affair. It was just that she the Duke would find her amusing with the, the Prince of Wales as she was then. 
Um, so, yeah, that's an, a, a little bit that's, that's, again, not quite right. Huh. Uh, back in the movie, there is one scene that gives a little bit of context. Uh, I, I had to pause the movie to see it, but there is a newspaper headline talking about how the Prince of Wales is outraged by the poor living conditions of the mining community. Uh, the date on that newspaper, when you pause the movie, is September 8th, 1932. Uh, since most of the movie really focuses on Wallace and Edward's private life, life, this is one of the only few times that we see Edward doing his duties as King or Prince of Wales, as he's visiting a a mining village in South Wales. The impression I got, though, was that Edward was loved by the people overall. Is that a fair assessment of Edward's time on the throne? Yes. I mean, I think the interesting parallels with with Prince Harry now, um, he was, you know, a young charismatic prince. He was popular uh, and things only in a sense went wrong when he met the American divorcee. Um, uh, He had been doing a lot of tours around the empire to thank them for their contribution during the First World War. Uh, and to train him as king. And he did have a common touch. He was less stuffy than the others. Uh, and it is true that when he was introduced to these Welsh miners, he, he said something must be done. Um, uh, he didn't follow through with it. And I think this, is, this, this has been slightly sort of exaggerated, his interest in living conditions and the poor. I mean, he was a socialite. That's all. He, uh, the only thing that interested him were, were dancers and drinking uh, and having a good time. Uh, he didn't have a huge social conscience. Uh, in the way that I think later royals did. So um, it, it's certainly true, and the, the press made a big thing of this comment, something must be done, but he never did anything about it. He never followed it through, tried to get government action. But he, you know, And he was someone who was prepared to use his uh, position as the heir apparent to try and influence uh, politics, but only uh, in favour of Germany, in favour of the Nazis, not in favour of his own people. Oh, wow. Okay, so almost like he was just doing a lip service, like these telling the people what they wanted to hear almost is what it sounds like. It, exactly. And then it was spun by the, by the palace in the way that so much stuff is still spun to this day. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there is some voiceover around that point in the movie that mentions uh, Edward was the king. Then, then there's the newspaper I mentioned that he's uh, the Prince of Wales. And of course, uh, he's also called the Duke of Windsor in the movie. So for those of us who may not be familiar with all of the titles that he held, can you clarify a little bit some since the movie doesn't really do a lot of clarification there, did he really hold all those titles at the same time? No. Uh, He was the Prince of Wales uh, until he inherited in January 1936. He then became King Edward VIII. It's confusing because his first name was David, but he became King Edward VIII, and that was from January to December 1936. And then uh, after that, he was almost immediately made Duke of Windsor. There's one point where they talk about Mr. Edward Windsor or something. He was never that. He was... Prince Edward, uh, and I think they they actually play part of the abdication broadcast on the film, and he does talk about that. And that abdication broadcast is absolutely the the, the real thing, uh, and in fact you can hear it on on um, YouTube. But I mean, one of the confusing things about the royals is they don't always take their own name. So, for example, his brother, who was called Albert, became King George the uh, Sixth, and um, uh, it's said that Prince Charles is likely to become King George the Seventh. So um, they just take the name that suits them. <laughs> I will admit that was something that was, it, it took a second for me to figure, okay, Birdie in the movie is not actually Birdie. Like he's called by this other name here, but then same with, with uh, Edward. Uh, oh, but these people are calling him David. Uh, but some of them call, the, call him Edward because, you know, they don't know him personally enough to call him David, that kind of thing. <laughs> that was <laughs> Exactly. And then there's another brother who's actually called George. Oh, of course. Uh, the Duke of Kent. So <laughs> of it gets really confusing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, speaking of some, some of that confusion with, with the name there, um, we already mentioned that Wallace was married to Ernest. Uh, on Edward's side, he wasn't married yet in the movie, but uh, the movie does show him in the relationship with Thelma, Wallace's friends. And then at one point, uh, Thelma goes to America for a few months. While she's away, there are newspaper articles that spread rumors of her having an affair with Alcan. And then even though Wallace tries to convince Edward that Thelma isn't cheating on him, it still bothers him. As I was watching this, I got the feeling that Thelma's trip was really when Edward started to turn his attention away from her being Thelma and towards Wallace. And the movie really suggests this when talking about the names. Uh, Thelma gets back to England. They have this dinner welcoming her home. Edward accidentally tears Wallace's dress during the dinner without thinking she blurts out, oh my God, David, look at what you've done. You've torn my dress. And that catches everybody's attention because only family 
calls him David. And the movie doesn't really show anything physical happening between them. But is it correct to show that about the time that Thelma was in America was when Edward and Wallace really got close? Yes, I think it is. Um, uh, the public really didn't know about the relationship until uh, pictures appeared in the press in the autumn of 1936, so literally only a few weeks before the abdication. Uh, uh, it, the whole thing had been kept quiet. I think people in society, there were rumours going around, you can read diaries that talk about the relationship, uh, and clearly the people who were very close to them would have known there was some relationship. He actually sued successfully a paper that claimed that they'd slept together before marriage. But I think it's pretty clear from all the evidence I've seen that they were sleeping together from pretty much 1931 onwards. Um, uh, he was a man, it was a very strange relationship because he really was looking for a mother figure and she played a very, she was a very dominant figure. Uh, and there was almost a sadomasochistic element to it. Uh, so it wasn't really like a normal conventional uh, relation, sexual relationship. For the just for timing purposes, when was Thelma's trip to America? Was that around that same time in thirty six? Then that's it's no nineteen thirty one. Oh, uh, she went she went off. Uh, sorry, no, it's a bit later. You're right, it's about nineteen thirty five. Okay, okay, so it, it was roughly around the same time then, because the movie kind of ties those two together. Yes, yes. Sorry, that's that's about right. Sorry. While Thelma is away, there is a scene where um, Ernest gets home and seems surprised to find. Edward there with Wallace and Edward says something about how this shouldn't be surprising. He's been there every night that week. Uh, is it, I'm guessing it's not really common for a King to visit your home. Uh, was Edward visiting Wallace as much as the movie shows? Yes, he was. He, he shared a flat in central London uh, and he was often there. Uh, and as you say, very unusual because, you know, the King uh, even then had uh, police protection officers, uh, his, or the Prince of Wales, you know, his movements were carefully organised, you know, in advance. So, um, but he would come often quite late at night. Uh, I think Simpson couldn't have been surprised. Simpson was well aware of this. Simpson was also a Freemason uh, and actually enjoyed the, the fact that his wife had the attentions of the Prince of Wales. He he thought he would be given some sort of honour uh, for basically sacrificing his his wife for the for the monarchy. Oh, okay. But I mean, he's, it, he kind of knew that there was something going on. I mean, you would, I would assume you'd kind of figure that out if people are coming to visit all, all, all hours of the night. Exactly. And he himself was, was, was in love with one of Wallace's best friends, one called Mary Raffrey Kirk, who he married after they got divorced in, in October 1936. Oh, wow. Yeah, movie doesn't mention anything about that. It just shows him as being this uh, faithful husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's much more nuanced than, than one realizes. This idea that the, uh, uh, you know, she, it was this great love affair uh, it, it is not really true. Uh, and in fact, the film does bring that out. I mean, she says how difficult it is to live this life when everyone thinks it's a great love affair, uh, and it isn't. <laughs> the weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Ernan. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The, the first time that we see, you mentioned them in, in public, and the first time we see them in public in the movie is when they take a trip to Italy. Uh, Edward assures Wallace that all of these photos, you, we see kind of reporters taking pictures. Uh, he assures her that they're not the photos aren't going to run in England's newspapers. But then a little bit later, we see Wallace walking down the street alone and there's some newspapers there and there's headlines like the King's scandalous affair and the King and Mrs. Simpson tour the Mediterranean. And it kind of highlights that she's still married. What was the initial reaction like when people started to find out that Wallace and Edward were together? I think there was shock because uh, as you say, a lot of it was kept away from the British public. The newspaper, the newspaper um, proprietors actually uh, kept the stuff out. Um, and so when they say it began to emerge, really after that summer of 36, people then, um, uh, it was all a great surprise. Uh, and I mean, there's still a lot of news management around the Royals. We don't get to the full picture of what's going on. Uh, but uh, I think that you know, it's all Constantina then, the, the, the disclosures about the relationship in those three or four months before the abdication in December 36. You mentioned earlier with... Um Ernest, and there is a brief scene that we see af- after you know Edward's visiting and, and such that Edward and Ernest have a talk, and Ernest pretty much gives up. He he's, you know says he's uh, he only hopes that Edward will love Wallace as much as he does, and Edward says he will. And for the most part, the movie suggests that Ernest obviously wasn't happy with it, but he didn't really try to get in the way. What was his reaction to Wallace and Edward's relationship? Well, I think he was accepting of it. Uh, I mean, partly because he had his own love affair with with referee Kirk. Uh, he was a gent. Uh, his expenses for the divorce were covered by the Prince of Wales. So, um, uh, but he did the decent thing. He, in those days, you could only get uh, divorced if you were, for example, caught in adultery. So he, people would go off, especially to hotels with a prostitute or someone. Uh, that you know, in this case with Mary Raffrey Kirk, and then arranged to be found in bed by the detective, or rather by a member of staff who would then talk to a detective. Uh, and so they went through this farce. Um, Simpson uh, went to a hotel just outside London with Raffrey Kirk and was caught in bed with her, uh, and she was able to sue for divorce. So she looked like the innocent party, but of course she wasn't. So he was a very decent man. We do things very strangely in Britain. It doesn't happen now, but uh, that was what happened then. Yeah, no, that uh, yeah, just wrapping my head around that <laughs> just the, that concept. Of, it's ob- obviously you're just doing it for yeah, okay. <laughs> that is you're doing uh, it just to, to t- t- it was a ticking boxes exercise, but um, uh, and there's got a lot. I mean, if you look at for example, even war, there are all sorts of stories like that in that in him. So I mean, it was it was very well known, and people sort of guessed that that it was all a, a charade. Yeah, yeah, and the, the poor women who are the ones being used just to tick the box. That's that's wow. Um, after after the newspapers start to break the reports of the scandal, as the headlines call it, um, we see some scenes in the movies where uh, Edward's parents, King George V and Queen Mary just aren't happy about Edward pursuing Wallace. How what did the movie do showing the King and Queen's reaction to Wallace and Edward? Well, they don't do very much. There's a, there's a moment with Queen Mary listening to the broadcast, seeing very, looking very unhappy. But I've actually looked at the papers in the Royal Archives, and this is the private family correspondence. And clearly it was a very bitter breakup. And people felt that he had, you know, it was dereliction of duty there. Uh, they didn't like Wallace. Uh, so uh, I was surprised that they didn't do more of that. Wallace, uh, they said, only came back once to Britain in, in, for the Duke's funeral in 1972. In fact, she came back once in, in 1967 when he was alive for the unveiling of a plaque to Queen Mary. But she was very much kept out. He was able to come back and see members of the family, but uh, she never came back and saw them. So again, shades of, of Meghan, really. You know, Harry comes back to see the Queen, but uh, only until recently has Meghan been allowed back. You, you mentioned the the public perception initially was shock, but um, once they kind of got over the initial shock, were they a- approving? Were they disapproving of this relationship? No, I mean there was a, there was a, a song at the times uh, which ran the uh, Mrs. Simpson has stolen our king, and so she got blamed. She was seen to be an adventurer. 
that she'd seduced him, uh, that she was a, you know, a terrible American divorcee, twice divorced by then. Um, and so, you know, as often happens, the woman gets the blame uh, and the man gets off scot-free. The, he was the man driving it. She didn't want to marry him. He'd threatened to commit suicide if she didn't marry him. She was, there, there is a bit where she pleads with him in the film saying, you know, look, we're, we're not really suited. Uh, you know, we should split. And I think what happened was events overtook her uh, uh, and she got in way above what she expected. She enjoyed being the mistress, but she had no intention of marrying him. Uh, but, but he became so obsessed with her that um, she really had no choice. And I think the, the film doesn't really quite make enough of that. You know, it suggests it plays into this myth of the great love affair and she's uh, desperately in love with him equally and this great, you know, the greatest romance of the century. And that's not what happened. Uh, it was about one very self-entitled man trying to get his own way with a woman who uh, had sort of bitten off more than she could chew. And so the whole charade of Ernest going off and and having an affair just to to check that box for divorce seems like it almost didn't matter at that point. Well, he went off and and was caught in bed with Mary Raffrey Kirk, but I mean, he was in love with her and he married her. Um, But uh, there was a lot of maneuvering to make it easy for for her to get her divorce, uh, to appear to be the innocent party, uh, and therefore the king to look, you know, absolutely whiter than white. But he was the man who had been uh, pushing this the whole time. I think what's interesting is Wallace and Ernest Simpson continued to correspond even after they were both married to other people and remained very fond of each other. Hmm. Okay, so they, d- they did have a good relationship then, despite all, all of this that was going on. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, then, and I think it goes on now, people sort of had multiple, particularly in those sort of circles, had multiple relationships Um uh, and, you know, people married and then had affairs uh, and, you know, within the royal family. Uh, uh, that was what happened with Prince Charles. You know, he he, he married Diana, uh, but kept on his, with his mistress. And Diana didn't realise that, that was the game that was played. So, uh, and the Duke was the same. Oh, the Prince of Wales, you know, he had numerous affairs. Uh, and Wallace was just another one, but that one became the serious one. Whereas for her, again, he was just another of her her flings, uh, and then she got sort of trapped. You, you may have already answered this next question, but um, the movie, if we go back to the movie, Wallace does kind of go back and forth with the idea of even divorcing Ernest. Uh, she's discussing it with Edward in one scene, and she talks about how the law says she can't be associated with any man for six months. She'll have to live on a cow farm in Suffolk during that time. And then later in the movie, uh, it shows that Wallace writing a letter to Edward saying that she can't make him happy. He can't make her happy. She has to return to Ernest to live a calm life. And so the movie certainly pushes forward that she is kind of the one driving this and she's not really sure. Did she have some indecision? Yes, she did. I mean, she pleaded with him. Uh, and in fact, she fled because of the attention she was getting. I mean, she, the hostile uh, reaction to her. I mean, there were worries about her safety. Uh, bricks were thrown through a window of her house and things. So she escaped to France. Uh, and we do have a scene in the film with her actually going through the mob and actually having to be put under a blanket in the car. So that's absolutely true. She goes to France and uh, in December, early December, and she stays in France until the decree absolute for her divorce comes through in the spring. And then she's reunited with, with the Duke of Windsor. Uh, and that was certainly true. They had to be, in fact, in separate countries. He went to Austria and then they were reunited in France, where they got married in June 1937. So that bit is is true, uh, and she did she did say, "I'm I'm uh, you know this is, is, is I'm not the right person for you," but you know he became so obsessive, and I think there's emotional blackmail that she really just got felt that she had no choice but to go through with it. But it you know it wasn't a happy occasion. His his family boycotted the wedding. There were only eight guests from Britain, uh, and. They were very much isolated, the two of them, against the world, really. Uh, The the Church of England refused to allow a clergyman to conduct the service. They were completely frozen out. Um, And so in some ways, that behavior brought them closer together. But um, if if it had been played in a more subtle way, I I suspect that uh, she might have been able to escape. Um, But um, I don't this idea that she loved him, uh, I'm afraid, is rather far-fetched. 
Wow. Yeah. And the movie does it really makes it seem like they, they escape together, not that they're escaping separately. Um, cause it, when you mentioned, you know, her hiding in the car, he's in the car with her. Well, it's, um, yes, again, that's inaccurate. It's, it's, it was a, a man called Lord Brownlow who worked for him. So they, they, again, the, 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 I don't know why they changed that because in some ways it's more effective that he isn't there. How could he be there? But, um, but there is a good line of the film that in order to escape his prison, the prison of the mon- of his role as, as future king, he had incarcerated her. And I think that that is true. I mean, he was never very keen to become king. Uh, he wasn't temperamentally suited. Uh, he had no sense of public duty. And she gave him his, his escape route. Uh, um, so I think that's certainly true. And in some ways, it also gave the authorities an escape route because they were concerned about him becoming king. They actually encouraged him to, to take up dangerous sports in the hope he would be killed. Uh, and when that failed, they used the opportunity of Wallace uh, on the scene to basically manoeuvre him off the throne. As Supreme Governor of the Church of England, he, he couldn't marry a divorced woman. But there were plenty of other options that were open to him. He could have kept her as a mistress. He could have had a morganatic marriage. He could have married her after the coronation. So um, the abdication needn't have happened, but it suited a lot of people's purposes. He didn't want the job and other people didn't want him to have the job. Wow, that's a lot more. There's a lot more uh, politics at play there than yeah. the movie makes it seem like he's doing just straight up doing this out of pure love. Like he wants he's like he he wants to hold on to the title, but he's he's willing to relinquish that for love. And it sounds like maybe that's not necessarily the case. Well, that's no, it's not, uh, you know, and that's always been the conventional line. So I was surprised when, you know, I read that Madonna had spent two years researching this because, you know, even even a few minutes researching it would have shown that was absolutely wrong. But Madonna, like a lot of women, has, has, I think just, you know, identifies with Wallace, sees her as a victim, uh, a victim of male oppression, perhaps. I think uh, Wallace was a victim uh, of the system and uh, of events and, and Edward. So I think that's right. But she she wasn't whiter than white. She she was a, a social climber. She was pretty manipulative. She took his jewels before they got married. He was very generous to her. So again, one of the concerns with the family that he was giving her lots of money even before they got married. Uh, and one of the reasons that she wasn't given a title is they thought the marriage wouldn't last and they didn't want to have two duchesses of Windsor. So it's it's a much more nuanced story than Madonna suggests. Now, you know, films clearly have to simplify things, but they they make some things more complicated than they need to be, and they simplify things which actually shouldn't be simplified because they're plain wrong. You mentioned not giving the title. Was she not given the title uh, Duchess of Windsor then? Well, sorry, she wasn't given Her Royal Highness. Uh, uh, as, as Duchess of Windsor, she should be Her Royal Highness. And in fact, her sisters-in-law were all Her Royal Highness. Uh, and the rules were if you married uh, her, uh, a, his royal highness, you should became her royal highness. But that's the type that she wasn't bestowed that title. Um, but you're right. Sorry, I, I should have been clearer. So they didn't want to have two HRHs um, who were Duchess of Windsor. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, the movie does basically set up the, the abdication as uh, an ultimatum, uh, either renounce Wallace for all time or step down from the throne. And the movie calls this a constitutional crisis for England. And the movie shows Edward's choice. It takes the time, quite a bit of time in the movie, actually, to hear the radio speech to the country just hours after he gave up the title of King Edward VIII of England to become Mr. David Windsor. How well did the movie do showing the actual abdication from Edward? Well, the abdication speech is absolutely as it was written. It was partly written by Winston Churchill, uh, and you can hear it on YouTube. The scene is, is has his younger brother sort of watching it, and it's done, as they say, from Windsor, but in a lovely room uh, with a fire burning, uh, all very cosy. Um, the reality was it was done in a very cold room, in the tower, uh, it was him alone. Um, he was introduced by the head of the BBC, uh, who literally slid out of the seat, and he slid into the seat behind it. So uh, it was a, a much bleaker affair than the one presented in the film. Uh, and it's clever. They use that in some ways to tell the story. But this is where a lot of the myth comes from, that particular abdication speech, which talks about giving up the throne for the woman he loves. Um, but in his... Uh, saying that he'll he'll obey his brother 
uh, and he wishes him well. That's absolutely in the speech. It's not exactly how uh, the Duke of Windsor then behaved. He was constantly trying to upstage his brother. He made life very difficult for him. Uh, there's one scene where he's bringing uh, the, the, uh, the new king uh, and you know trying to boss him around. Now, that's exactly what happened. He, he couldn't accept that he was no longer king, and he tried to boss his younger brother around, who was the king. So he, he couldn't accept that he wasn't king, but he also kind of didn't want to be king. Exactly. I mean, you know, he, he wasn't always very rational. Uh, and of course, the, <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make subject, sure I was understanding that. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I think he, 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 he sort of wanted to, he wanted the, the, um, the benefits, the privileges, uh, without in a sense doing any of the hard work. But I think one of the interesting things is in, in my book, Traitor King, which looks at the period after the abdication, uh, he is he can rather regrets giving up the throne. Uh, he he needs to big himself up in front of Wallace. Uh, he uh, feels he's been outmaneuvered uh, and um, cheated in some ways of his birthright, and that's why he's so keen for the Germans to put him back on the throne as a puppet king should they invade Britain. Can you clarify some the the, the term constitutional crisis for for England with that uh, for those of us who aren't familiar with. England's constitution. Why was that such a, a crisis for the country? Well, it was a crisis because the uh, there'd never before been a king who abdicated his throne, uh, and it's almost a divine the sense of divine right. When when people are crowned, they're crowned for life. They can't just give it up. Uh, uh, and uh, the queen has said that she will serve till the end of her days. We, we're going through a period now of what we call soft regency, where she's sharing some of the jobs with Prince Charles, indeed with Prince William. But the idea that a monarch can actually give up something that is in some ways inherited was is just not something that's part of the British constitution. Hmm. And so this was why it was a constitutional crisis. Uh, uh, it affected, uh, you know, clearly he, he, this was his birthright and he, his job was to, 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 to follow it through. Um, it became a constitutional crisis also because of the empire, uh, the, the decisions were required from other Dominion uh, leaders, empire leaders. So that's why they had to take advice from Canada and South Africa and also New Zealand and Australia. So it, it became not just a personal family crisis, but one that involved the government and indeed governments abroad, as well as a religious one, because, of course, he couldn't be head of the Church of England and marry a divorced woman. Now, of course, that's all changed now. I mean, in those days, you couldn't go, for example, to the Royal Enclosure at Ascot, which is one of the big horse racing events, if you were divorced, even if you were the innocent party. There was a huge uh, um, prejudice against anyone who was uh, divorced. And of course, later on, it emerges when Princess Margaret falls in love with Peter Townsend, the, her father's equerry, uh, and she can't marry him, uh, even though he is divorced and he was the innocent party because, because he's divorced. You're, you're talking earlier about how um, people were almost using this, like he was using Wallace as, as an escape from the, the monarchy. And then perhaps others were also want, want, not wanting him to be king because he couldn't, couldn't fit that. Um, how, and then it sounds like you know, a lot of laws had to change or a lot of things had to change or they had to figure out a lot of things because this sort of thing had never happened before. Um, how long was this process? Because the movie doesn't really have any sort of a timeline for how long this happened, other than the date at the very beginning of the movie. Um, there's not a lot of time. Well, it moved very swiftly. Um, you know, he abdicated in mid-December uh, and uh, was sent into exile that very night, uh, not to return. Uh, and Bertie became the new king and had, a, you know, was the acts of parliament were pushed through literally that day. Uh, and, you know, he was in Buckingham Palace as king. Uh, and his coronation took place in May 1937. It's actually the, the date that Edward would have been coronated, uh, um, crowned. So it was all pretty ruthless. And I think one of the concerns was that Edward be, had become a focus for the fascist movement in Britain. Uh, and they didn't want him to be around and, and someone that they could uh, group around. So it was a way of breaking up those fascist groups by sending him abroad and basically keeping him out and freezing him out. But, um, you know, it, we have to this day, I mean, it's a shock, shock subject, the abdication. Uh, and I think the royal family have vowed it should never happen again, which is why you know, the Queen won't abdicate. I doubt Prince Charles will ever abdicate. So um, 
it, it, it's the ramifications have have have, have you know, gone down through several generations. But in some ways, we've got to remember this is all quite close. This is the Queen's uncle. Uh, she knew him. He was her favourite uncle. So for them, it's a very close and rather raw thing. Yeah, and we do see uh, a younger, obviously uh, uh, Elizabeth in the movie as well, um, and she seems to. Well, I mean, I guess according to the movie, she she seems to at least not be a big fan of Wallace and the, the their relationship. No, I think none of the royal family were fans of Wallace. Um, uh, again, what's confusing is that Bertie's husband is called Elizabeth, uh, and um, the Queen, as she's known, the Queen Mother uh, felt that Bertie's early death was as a result of taking on this burden, uh, which she didn't expect to inherit. She called uh, Wallace that woman. Uh, Wallace called her the witch from Glans, which is a place in Scotland where she came from. So no love lost between the Queen's mother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Uh, and I think that attitude was passed on down to the Queen. Um, uh, and, the, you know, that's why there was no real reconciliation until 1972, literally on his deathbed, the Queen on a state visit to Paris visited the Duke, uh, I think, to try and just mend um, some of those fences but also to ensure that material that was owned by the Duke, the let, some of the letters uh, and uh, the artefacts, garter robes, things like that, were returned to the royal family, personal uh, things that they wanted back. So in some ways, it's extraordinary. There was such a huge auction in 1998. There was also a, an earlier one in 1986 in Geneva of the jewellery because the royal family took three lorry loads of material away from the house in, in Paris after uh, Wallace died in 1986. Hmm. You, you mentioned... Um, uh, I, I, and he, sorry, after the Duke died in 1972. So there was a whole-scale sort of clear-out of their stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned him being the Duke, and earlier we did talk about the, the titles. Uh, a little later in the movie, when we see uh, David Wallace staying at a room in Paris there, and then later in the 1990s with the fictional you know, Wally Winthrop uh, storyline, uh, they talk about how the Duke and Duchess of Windsor stayed there. Um, which of the titles did they maintain after abdicated? Was it only the Duke and Duchess? Yes, they were always known that that was the only title they had, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. So, I mean, normally you would have uh, several titles as a member of the royal family, often an English title and a Scottish title. But he lost all his titles. He lost his life interest in family properties like Balmoral and Sandringham uh, and uh, the chance of income from some of the royal estates. So his only his only uh, thing was Duke and Duchess of Windsor. And that's why he was so cross that she wasn't her royal highness. So people didn't, for example, have to curtsy to her, but they did have to bow to him. Uh, um, but the Hotel Maurice, where they did in fact film, is indeed where they used to stay. They got a special rate there, a uh, very generous rate. And of course, it was good publicity for the Hotel Marus. Uh, they also had a lot to do with the Ritz in Paris, often entertained there. They took private rooms there to, to have host dinner parties. So uh, a lot of the time when they were in Paris, they didn't just rent uh, houses, but they also actually had suites of rooms and hotels as well. In the movie, according, once he's no longer king, David now is uh, having a hard time getting a hold of his brother on the phone. And he and Wallace are in Paris. They're not able to return to England. And then there's a scene where we see, mentioned earlier, uh, Elizabeth talking to King George about how David had lunch with Hitler. And that makes people think he's a Nazi. Now, the movie doesn't really explain this very well. But, of course, you mentioned your book uh, called Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. So I'm going to assume that the movie is correct and suggest that they weren't allowed back to England. Can you fill in some more historical context around this? Yes, the deal was that uh, he wouldn't upstage his brother. He would keep out of Britain. Now, the Duke thought that at some stage he would come back, but actually he wasn't allowed to come back ever. Uh, Fort Belvedere, which was his beloved sort of country house, was was given to someone else. Uh, and when he could, he'd hoped that he perhaps could keep that. Uh, and he one of the reasons he didn't come back to Britain was that he would be taxed. And the last thing he wanted was to... Um, to have to pay income tax uh, on quite substantial earnings he had. So that was actually quite a clever way of keeping him out. Uh, but it, it is true that uh, almost immediately after the wedding, he made a tour of Germany, uh, visiting um, SS troops, meeting all the Nazi leaders. He actually had tea with Hitler rather than dined with him. 
uh, at uh, his home in Bertesgaden. So it's um, that's absolutely right. He, the, 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 the authorities in Britain were not told about the trip. They just sort of read about it literally as it was about to happen. Uh, now, one argument is it doesn't show that he's a Nazi just because he makes a trip to Germany. But he was it was a propaganda coup for the Germans. Uh, and I think it was one in the, uh, uh, you know, basically it was two fingers to his brother. that He was doing what suited him. Uh, and it does give us an early indication of his sympathies. They'd always been suspected of being Nazis. Wallace had been close to a German uh, leader called von Ribbentrop, uh, who was later ambassador in London. Uh, he had uh, tried to interfere in politics. He tried to downplay something called the remilitarization of the Rhineland in March 1936, when Germany marched troops into an area that he wasn't supposed to be in, uh, and people let him get away with it. So he'd shown always these great sympathies to the Nazis. A number of his German cousins were Nazi generals. Uh, and it's clear, again, from looking at the Royal Archives uh, material, that the royal family were monitoring his activities with the Germans. Uh, and so it was perfectly feasible for Bertie in 1937 to suspect he was a Nazi. But they didn't realize how much of a Nazi he was until the Second World War came along. And he literally got into bed with the Nazis in the hope that he would be restored to the throne. Wow. So he was essentially trying to use the Nazis to get back into England and get the title back that, that he didn't want earlier. Yeah, exactly. He changed his mind. And the, the Germans knew this. They targeted him. They offered him millions of Swiss francs uh, to come back uh, if they invaded, successfully invaded Britain in 1940, to come back as the German leader uh, in Britain uh, to depose his brother. He, in fact, encouraged the Germans to bomb London as the best way of beating uh, beating Britain. So he became a a complete uh, traitor to his country uh, for his own personal ends. He, He recommended bombing London. Yeah, I mean, we found this in the archives uh, being reported. Uh, we know this because of material in Franco when he was that he was. This was all said to the Germans when he was in uh, Spain and Portugal in the summer of 1940. So we have these uh, events recorded by diplomats down there, by the German diplomats reporting back to Berlin, and that that material was found in captured German documents at the end of the war, also from. Uh, Franco's own files, because the Spanish were keeping an eye on him, and and also the Portuguese Secret Service. We have their surveillance reports uh, and him going into and out of the German embassy and the uh, intercepted telegrams that were going to and fro. So we have chapter and verse, and also his his protection officer was not just protecting him, he was actually uh, reporting on him back to the king and to the authorities in Britain. Wow. wow. Well, that makes me wonder, too, because at the very end of the movie, we see uh, an older Wallace uh, taking care of an older Edward, now David, uh, at their place in Paris. And it's obvious in the movie that David's health is failing. He's on, on the bed, but they still seem happy. But what you're saying, it sounds like he wanted he almost wanted his old life back. Did did Wallace and Edward's story end up happily ever after, as the movie seems to suggest? No, I mean, the. Um... Uh, it's not true at all. The, the, he was dying in, in, in May 1972. Uh, and for the last two weeks of his life, he was crying out for Wallace to visit him. And even though she, her bedroom was two doors away from him, she never once visited him in that two weeks, according to a woman called Julie Chattard, still alive, who lives in Baltimore, who was the temporary night nurse brought in to take care of him. So this idea that, that they were, they were a, sort of an, a, a lovely loving old couple uh, you know in the in the film she actually dances the twist from the 1960s for him which is ridiculous because i mean she, the, the, she, that wouldn't have happened i mean she did wear many skirts in the 1960s but she certainly wouldn't have danced the twist um but they were sort of rubbing along um i think well, after he died i think she realized what she'd lost because she had nothing she had no family of her own no children she was an only child so um uh, her closest relationship w- w- was with an aunt who was long dead. So she was there, and, and the only family she had was the royal family who weren't interested in her. So I think she realized that, you know, he was the only thing in her life, and now she'd lost him. Hmm. Now, you, you mentioned at the at the beginning that you would give this a 2 out of 10. What would you say the biggest in historical inaccuracy in the film would be? Well, I think that the, the depiction of this being the greatest romance of the of the, of the century, uh, uh, it was a pretty sordid arrangement, really. 
uh, of one obsessive man and one uh, woman who was trapped. Uh, and they both had affairs uh, before and during the marriage. So she, for example, had an affair literally within months of the, her marriage with William Bullitt, who was the American ambassador in Paris. She later had a long <coughs> affair with a man called Jimmy Donoghue, who was the heir to the Woolworth fortune and cousin of Barbara Hepworth, uh, Barbara um, Woolworth. So um, uh, it, it's just ridiculous to suggest that they were this, this, this loving couple that you know went into the sunset together. Um, they robbed along, but she was pretty terrible to him. He was often sent to bed in tears. She was cuckolded at him publicly, sometimes you know, at, a, at a, a lunch party. There's a story of her leaving with Jimmy Donahue and going upstairs and making love quite noisily while he sits at the dining room table, you know, literally just a few feet away. So she she took pleasure in humiliating him. And the more humiliated he was, the more he was obsessed and loved her. Uh, So it was a very odd, as they say, sort of masochistic relationship. Wow. So she clearly didn't love him nearly as much as he loved her. Absolutely not. No, I mean she is. She put up with it because she, you know he gave her status, he gave her a, a, a life. She had no money, uh, uh, no other way of supporting herself, uh, and she loved you know the cafe society. She loved their very extravagant life. They had a staff of almost thirty, three cars, and three chauffeurs. Uh, she would not have had that on her own, and she was not an attractive woman. I think uh, people would even struggle to say she was handsome. Uh, someone said she looked like a playing card. She was very thin. Uh, and quite brittle. Uh, and it was only because he was this rather pathetic, weak figure that um, she was, you know, that, and clearly drawn to her for whatever reason. But so, so she realized she had to stick with him. She, he, he was our, her best bet. In, in the movie, one of the ways that they learn things at the, at the end, we see um, Wally going to meet someone named Al-Fayed, who supposedly has this collection of private letters between the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Do those letters actually exist? Yes, that's accurate. Uh, okay. um, the man who, who owned Harrods here, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, uh, took over the lease of the Bois de Boulogne in return for restoring it because it's become quite run down in the final 14 years after the Duke died when the Wallace was there, but literally living out of one room. Uh, and... Uh, he bought it with, well, took it on uh, on the basis that he would restore it, but he inherited these letters. In fact, letters were published uh, very shortly after Wallace died. Um, uh, quite private letters. People were quite critical of these private letters being published, but they are a very important historical source, uh, as Wally in the film says. Uh, and in fact, the actor who plays Fayed it looks exactly like him. So that bit is absolutely right. Uh, uh, and um, Fayed is still alive now in his in his nineties. He, of course, it was his son who was killed in the car crash with Diana in nineteen ninety eight. And one of the reasons that the uh, uh, sorry nineteen ninety seven one of the reasons that the uh, auction took place in ninety eight rather than ninety seven was because Dodie had died and it just didn't feel right to have an auction at the same time, so it was delayed. Save the the most difficult for last, perhaps, or the might be most difficult question. If you could change one thing about the movie to make it closer to what really happened, what would it be? Uh, well, I would uh, uh, change the scriptwriter, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, possibly okay. the, the, the producer, uh, and write something that was accurate. Um, uh, uh, what would? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a very powerful story. It's a much more nuanced and interesting story than the story they presented. They, they've presented the myth, which in some ways w- w- people have been challenging for a long time. I've, I've perhaps gone further than most. So it's really odd that, that, that they're just playing the story that was presented in 1936 rather than the story that actually is now coming to light some, you know, 80 years later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's a, a much bigger picture. I mean, they focus, like I mentioned earlier, they focus really on uh, Edward and Wallace together, um, but they don't talk about the bigger picture of the the Nazis or really even what, what else is going on in the rest of the world in the 30s that obviously led up to World War II. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's really weird. I mean, it's, it's focused, you know, clearly around the abdication and, that, and most books are focused around the abdication. Uh, they, they cover the 50 years afterwards, uh, 
till she died in only a few pages, which is what makes my book slightly different. But, you know, uh, there had, should have been some reference beyond uh, the brother saying, I think he's a Nazi, because it's just thrown in without any real explanation. There's, there's one short, short scene of newsreel, which is accurate, of him on this visit in October 37, uh, visiting Nazi leaders. But they, they sort of drop it in without any explanation and then don't develop it. And that's sort of one of the problems of the whole film. It throws out odd little bits. Um, uh, and it's very confusing unless you're a bit of an expert. And even even a biographer like me is slightly confused time, times of what's going on. Um, so it's it's a sort of wasted opportunity, I think, because Wallace, in some ways, uh, I agree with Madonna, was a, a rather tragic figure. And I think there would have been a lot more... It's hard to get sympathy for her. Uh, in the in the film as it stands, when it would have been very easy to to paint her as as a woman more sinned against than sinned, sinner. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, at least it wasn't me. I was I was rather confused with a lot of what was going on in the movie because yeah, they throw little bits in here and there, but they don't give much context around it. It's like oh, he had lunch with Hitler. Well, back up exactly. a second. Wait, what? <laughs> Uh, and then suddenly later we have a we have a picture of you know the, um, marrying uh, Ernest Simpson or marrying uh, Wynne Spencer, but they've already been talked about beforehand without being introduced, and then suddenly they're introduced later on. So I think maybe the film editor should be changed as well. <laughs> Go back to changing that. <laughs> so well, I'm curious now because once um, since Edward obviously well David lived through World War II. Uh, Prior to, he, he was perhaps uh, more sympathetic to the fascists and the Nazis and, and with the potential of getting his his um, title back. What was, do we know what his thoughts were after the atrocities of the Nazi regime came to light since he lived through that? Yes, I mean, the extraordinary thing, he remained anti-Semitic all his life. He believed that Hitler was a good chap. Uh, when he was touring in October 1937, he actually saw a concentration camp. I mean, there were no, he had no illusions about, or, or um, uh, he, he, yeah, he wasn't given a total tour. It was a sort of prison or something. But, you know, he, he would have known from newspapers, which he read avidly, exactly what was going on. He remained friendly with the fascist leader, Oswald Mosley, to the end of his life. Uh, and the sort of people he mixed with were uh, very right-wing American businessmen, people like Clint Murchison. So, um, but, you know, the war comes and people in Britain realise the only way to deal with Hitler is to fight him. Uh, but he's still broadcasting to Hitler on the eve of the war, saying, you know, we want, we, we, we want peace. He's uh, intriguing with Nazi uh, um, spies um, right through till 1941, uh, giving them support. He tries to keep America out of the war before um, the November 40 election by uh, appealing to isolationists. Uh, he continues to say, I mean, the postal censorship reports uh, pick up all sorts of conversations he has with people. He's posted to the Bahamas as governor during the war to keep him out of the way. But in fact, he's a mischief maker there. Uh, he, he's constantly trying to get to the States and to, to, to sow dissension in the States. So um, he, he remains a pretty unrepentant Nazi, I would say, to the end of his life. One of the themes throughout the movie is, um, from her perspective, there's a couple different times in the movie where it talks about how um, everybody talks about what he gave up in the throne, but what about what I gave up from Wallace's perspective? Can you talk a little bit about from the movie being more from her perspective? Yes, I think that's a very good point, and I think that is true. Uh, I mean, she has this line, what you know, people don't ask what, what I gave up, uh, they just see me as a foreigner who fell in love. Uh, they used me to escape his prison, to incarcerate me in mine. Uh, so there's some good lines like that. And I think it's a shame those weren't developed. Uh, and clearly Wally in, in the 1998 subject, you know, identifies with her and the abusive relationship that, that Wallace uh, Simpson had been in, not, not later, the abusive relationship later with the husband. But I think uh, that would have been a theme to really develop, um, because Madonna clearly is very sympathetic to Wallace. And I think, indeed, a lot of commentators who've written about uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor tend to be more sympathetic to her than to the Duke, who's seen as rather weak and stupid and, 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 and uh, uh, rather privileged and, and selfish. Um, but, it's, but it's one of those things, that, again, like so much, is sort of dropped in and not developed. So we get these odd moments 
where you sort of wait for some, something more to come, and then they've moved on to something else, which is a shame because uh, I think that would have been a very strong motif, which would would have um, had some resonance now uh, uh, in a way if we was trying to find something that was contemporary uh, resonance. Um, that would have been that would have been the angle. Yeah, I, I I definitely felt that it was kind of thrown in there. Although I also kind of got the sense that that was partially the story they're trying to tell kind of from her perspective. Um, but the way they show it, you know, what about what I gave up? Well, the only, obviously the, the first marriage that she had was not a, a happy marriage at all. Um, and so the only thing that I, I got that she kind of gave up was Ernest. And cause that seemed like a happy marriage in the movie. And so, but it also made it seem like she was perfectly happy with Edward. And so, yeah, she gave up a lot to li- you know maybe live this public life, but she seemed like she was happy, especially at the end. You know, I was mentioned earlier. You know, we're talking about the the ending scene. She seemed happy. It's rather tender that scene. Yeah, I mean, and you know, there's a fa- there's a famous moment on the morning after their wedding where she actually comes. They slept in separate rooms. She came to his the foot of his bed and looked down to him and said, "You know, what happens now? You know, we've the great you know we've now got married." And, you know, she's told friends, you know, how am I going to entertain this man? His, his life has been used to all the way through to being controlled, things happening, people doing things for him. And now it's just the two of us and I'm responsible for him. And I think she was completely daunted by, by this. Uh, and I think in some ways that cafe society lifestyle was partly just to keep him occupied. And he was a man who had no interests. So the only thing to keep interested was to, to have dinner parties. Uh, but... Um, so that you know, there is stuff in the biographies that would have backed up Madonna's thesis, uh, but for whatever reason, she she chose not to to go down that route. But we have no real sense of that relationship, as, as you say, until we have that rather tender moment at the end where she's sort of um, he's in bed with with various bits coming out of him, uh, and uh, he asks her to dance and bring back his memories of the past. Uh, and I think she was a good dancer; they both were. Uh, but you know, that was a scene I think that could have been developed. Uh, and we had no sense of this being a great partnership, um, uh, either of being a great partnership or, or being one where, you know, he was sent to bed in tears. So uh, it, it, it was very hard to see what what it was all about. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about W.E. We a moment ago mentioned your book called Traitor King, A Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Can you share a little bit more about your book and where someone listening can pick up a copy? Yes, of course. Well, I mean, they can get a copy, uh, I hope, from uh, bookshops and certainly from Amazon. Uh, it's just come out in the States. It's published uh, a few months ago in Britain and got uh, quite a lot of coverage. It was a bestseller here, top 10 bestseller, uh, and was the subject of a documentary made by Channel 4 called Traitor King, which I think is also available in the States. So people can, can, can get the story there. But basically, I argue that the period from 1936 to 86, when she died, is actually much more important than people realize. It sheds new light on the abdication. I go through these Nazi sympathies, the way he, in, he intrigued against the British government, how Churchill threatened him with court-martial, how he was sent off to the Bahamas where he was involved in covering up a murder, uh, and uh, how these um, capture of these German documents in May 1945 revealed just all the intrigues that he had been conducting with the Nazis going back to 1936. Uh, and so I think it paints him in a very different picture. Uh, the book also, uh, I think, demolishes the myth of this great love affair, showing this was a very uh, weird relationship, which was certainly not a love affair, in which she bossed him around uh, and uh, he put up with this behaviour. Uh, how also they were venal. Uh, they, they basically exploited their position for their own commercial advantage um, as royals. Uh, and, you know, it's become quite timely because there are lots and lots of parallels with the Harry and Meghan story. So the debates over finances and security, the breakdown of family relationships, the suing of the press, the curation of the story through tame biographers, uh, the uh, unfortunate uh, radio or television interviews, all these uh, took place with the Windsors and are being repeated again now, um, 80 years later. Wow. Yeah. I want to see a movie made out of your book. I mean, that sounds like the story to, <laughs> well, story to tell there. I'd love to come and discuss it with you. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's been great talking to you. 
This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Andrew Loney once again for sharing his knowledge about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. If you want to learn more about the true story, make sure to go pick up a copy of Andrew's book called Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. As always, you can find links to Andrew's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Wally Winthrop's storyline is fictional. Number two, King Edward VIII's real name was Bertie. Number three, Wallace Simpson was married twice before Edward. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Wally Winthrop's storyline is fictional. That is true. And by that, what I mean is it's true that the storyline is fictional. That's why we didn't really focus on it much during the episode. That brings us to number two. King Edward VIII's real name was Bertie. That's the lie. His real name was David. Bertie, or Albert, was his brother's name who became King George VI when Edward abdicated the throne. That means number three is true as well. Wallace Simpson was married twice before Edward. The movie was correct to show that Wallace was married once before she married Ernest Simpson, so that would mean she was married twice before her affair with Edward, who ended up being her third husband. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help support the next episode and get ad-free versions of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's based on a true story podcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.